rotted by the wayside for want of someone to bury them. In many a village, no single man was left alive. Then at last, the spring came, with sunshine and health and lightness and laughter. The greenest, sweetest, tenderest spring that England had ever known. But only half of England could know it. The other half had passed away with the great purple cloud. Yet it was there in that steam of death, in that reek of corruption, that the brighter and freer England was born. There, in that dark hour, the first streak of the new dawn was seen. For in no way, save by a great upheaval and change, could the nation break away from that iron feudal system which held her limbs. But now it was a new country which came out from that year of death. The barons were dead in swaths, No high turret nor cunning moat could keep out that black commoner who struck them down. Oppressive laws slackened for want of those who could enforce them, and once slackened could never be enforced again. The labourer would be a slave no longer. The bondsman snapped his shackles. There was much to do and few left to do it. Therefore the few should be free men, name their own price, and work where and for whom they would. It was the Black Death which cleared the way for the Great Rising thirty years later, which left the English peasant the freest of his class in Europe. But there were few so far-sighted that they could see that here as ever good was coming out of evil. At the moment misery and ruin were brought into every family. The dead cattle, the ungarnered crops, the untilled lands, every spring of wealth had dried up in the same moment. Those who were rich became poor, but those who were poor already, and especially those who were poor with the burden of gentility upon their shoulders, found themselves in a perilous state. All through England the smaller gentry were ruined, for they had no trade save war, and they drew their living from the work of others. On many a manor-house there came evil times, and on none more than on the manor of Tilford where for many generations the noble family of the Lorings had held their home. There was a time when the Lorings had held the country from the North Downs to the lakes of Frensham, and when their grim castle keep, rising above the green meadows which border the river Way, had been the strongest fortalice betwixt Guildford Castle in the east and Winchester in the west. But there came that baron's war, in which the king used his Saxon subjects as a whip, with which to scourge his Norman barons, and Castle Loring, like so many other great strongholds, was swept from the face of the land. From that time the Lorings, with estates sadly curtailed, lived in what had been the Dower House, with enough for their needs, but shorn of all their splendour. And then came their lawsuit with Waverley Abbey, when the Cistercians laid claim to their richest land, with Peccary, Turbury, and feudal rights over the remainder. It straggled on for years, this great lawsuit, and when it was finished the men of the church and the men of the law had divided all that was richest of the estate between them. There was still left the old manor-house, from which, with each generation, there came a soldier to uphold the credit of the name, and to show the five scarlet roses on the silver shield where it had always been shown, in the van. There were twelve bronzes in the little chapel where Matthew the priest said Mass every morning, all of men of the house of Loring. Two lay with their legs crossed as being from the Crusades, 
Six others rested their feet upon lions, as having died in war. Four only lay with the effigy of their hounds to show that they had passed in peace. Of this famous but impoverished family, doubly impoverished by law and by pestilence, two members were living in the year of Grace 1349, Lady Ermintrude Loring and her grandson Nigel. Lady Ermintrude's husband had fallen before the Scottish spearmen at Stirling, and her son Eustace, Nigel's father, had found a glorious death nine years before this chronicle opens upon the poop of a Norman galley at the sea fight of Slois. The lonely old woman, fierce and brooding like the falcon mewed in her chamber, was soft only toward the lad whom she had brought up. All the tenderness and love of her nature, so hidden from others that they could not imagine their existence, were lavished upon him. She could not bear him away from her, and he, with that respectful...